0: Hi, this is Bill Chamberlain with a new edition of Legends of Film. Today, Clint Tatum and I have a rare interview with writer-director Walter Hill. Mr. Hill's credits include The Warriors, 48 Hours, Southern Comfort, and Hard Times. Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson and James Coburn, will be showing Saturday, March 10th, at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium at 2 p.m., Now, on to the interview.
1: Hard times was your directorial debut. How did you get your first directing job?
2: Well, I had been working as a writer in Hollywood and also working as an assistant director in Hollywood for about, oh, geez, I guess it was about six, seven years previous to that, and I had been fortunate enough to... Have finally kind of, well, I went I went along a number of years, the typical struggling writer, I suppose you'd say, and then, uh, although my biggest problem was I never could seem to finish a script, and I was working, as I say, as an assistant director and various odd jobs around Hollywood. I finally got serious about the writing, and I started selling, and actually rather quickly, uh, as these things go. Mm-hmm suddenly I was getting movies produced. One of them especially became a big hit movie that was The Getaway that Mr. Peckinpah directed, and it was really off the strength of that that I was kind of faced with this choice of I could could take some chances and go work for minimum and get a chance at directing or be defensive and try to be a high-priced Hollywood screenwriter and all that. But as that, far as I was concerned, that was no choice at all. I I rushed forward at the, really the first possible opportunity. I knew a man named Larry Gordon. He and I had a passing relationship, and he was moving over from American International Pictures to uh, the start of a low-budget division at Columbia Pictures. And he uh, said to me, you know, would I... Consider directing if I wrote a script for him for, you know, the minimum wage. <laughs> and uh, I said, sure. And he had a project about these kind of fighters that fight in, oh, I don't know, barns and warehouses and etc. And uh, it was a contemporary piece, but I thought I thought it was something that appealed to me. And I made it a period piece and then kind of rewrote it entirely. And we got it made. At the time Charles Bronson was the top world box office
1: attraction and this was your first film as a director what was the collaboration process
2: between you two Well it was it was a funny thing the uh, as I I guess I indicated the picture was meant to be a low budget you know I don't know what else you would call it a kind of a B movie with a younger man playing the lead with not a not a top star but to make the movie very cheaply and and see if we could you know in in kind of in the spirit of oh I don't know Macon County Line or one of those kind of movies that were somewhat popular at that time or what was the one with Joe Don Baker Walking Tall you know that 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 type of thing and the studio uh, insisted that when I turned the script in they said they thought we should take a shot at a, at a legitimate movie star, so they sent it to Clint Eastwood, who uh, turned it down, and they next sent it to Charlie Bronson, and I don't know how how much you know about how these things work, but you can wait quite a while sometimes. We got a call about a day later saying that Bronson read it and liked it, and would Mr. Hill come over to Charlie's agent, Paul Coner, to his office and meet Charlie, and they could discuss it. So I tootled over there and Charlie, uh who was a rather formidable fellow, gave me this kind of death look and, and uh uh asked me why the hell I thought I was capable of directing this thing and I don't know what I can't I can't exactly remember what the answer was, but I you know, it was in the vein of, well, you know, if I could write it I think I could direct it kinda <laughs> And uh <laughs> I was hoping to get out of the room alive actually. <laughs> <laughs> rather, whatever my ambitions were, were they they became survival. Anyway, we chatted around for a while and I I came to know that uh, I wasn't being picked on or it's the way Charlie uh treated everybody. So <laughs> he was not a warm and engaging and friendly fellow but the the truth is that uh, to to kind of answer your question a little better that during the picture, Charlie and I actually got along very well. He was, as I say, he was not the kind of fellow you fell in close with. He kept his distance and but I actually got along with Charlie better than I did with, uh, Jimmy Coburn. It was an odd thing. Charlie had the reputation of being a very difficult fellow at that point in his life and I, I actually got along quite well with him, and Jimmy had the reputation of being a, a very easy guy to get along with and very pleasant, which, by the way, I think was true, but I didn't get along with him terribly well, but I think it was just one of those kind of curious ironies. In
1: the mo- your movie Hard Times, as it progresses, each fight scene becomes more intense. Could you discuss the choreography of the fight scenes?
2: I, I think your description is accurate, the, the hard thing, among the hard things, if you do a film like that, is to keep the fights from becoming repetitive, and sometimes you get into an action situation, it's happened later in my career, where things just fall together well and the, the shooting part goes, goes well, and you're left with the best, you know, the best sequence in the middle of the movie, which is not the way it's supposed to be. Actually, the film has been criticized several times for the middle fight with Bob Tessier, the bald fellow, as being a better fight than the end fight. I don't actually think that's true. I think it had to do with the rather more, uh, oh, how do I put it, the grotesque, if if you will, physicality of Tessier, as opposed to the choices we made with Nick at the end, but I actually think the fight at the end of the movie is better done and a little more classical. And but as to the choreography, we did—I just worked it out on a day-to-day basis with the stunt coordinator, and the the script was a loose blueprint, very loose. But uh, I was—I was rather enjoined by the way on the fights not to make them bloody. If you'll notice that the the knockouts are all fairly clean and there's virtually no blood in the movie and the studio was on a let's not offend anybody by making... I think the perception was the subject matter was so tough and the Bronson image was so tough especially after lethal weapon I'm sorry uh, death wish especially after death wish that if he's been beating people bloody It would have been too difficult to contemplate for them, at least, or the audiences, or whatever. So I had to, you know, there's certain promises you have to kind of make when you're getting your chance to be the the director for the first time on a fair-sized commercial movie. Although this movie, it it was interesting. We had this low budget, as I said, because of what it was originally designed to be. That never really changed. It just Charlie came into it, and they paid him a lot of money. And but uh, and Charlie didn't want the budget to change. Charlie didn't want to get on a movie that was going to take a long time to do. He wanted, he liked to get in and get them done. So the idea that it was a small movie was actually rather different than most movie stars was very appealing to Charlie. In an interview,
1: someone asked you once what makes a western, and you st- stated. Uh, lack the recourse of civilization to work out whatever problem there is, and the characters have to work the dilemma out themselves. But when I look at your non-Western, like The Warriors, Southern Comfort, Streets of Fire, Trespass, even Hard Times, these characters are having to work out their own dilemmas. Do you consider
2: these films somewhat Westerns, too? I do. I think I'm uh, hopelessly condemned uh I mean, I think you could take, if I was feeling highfalutin, I could say they're very Greek. But I think it's really the fact that when I was a kid, I liked westerns best of all. And I think I just somehow, you know, those those experiments you read about in science where uh, they'll take a baby duck and put the clock next to it and it thinks the clock is its mother or something, you know. I think that's the way I was. I just, I grew up watching westerns the whole rhythm and plot progressions and character dilemmas and all that—I think all my films, in some some way or another, are westerns or like westerns. i was I've just finished a movie, shooting a movie in New Orleans, and I was thinking to myself how much like I was the other day. I was looking at parts of it. And I was thinking. You know, Christ, I've done it again. You know, it's it's it's, it's not even conscious half of it. So, anyway, uh, I guess I plead guilty is the answer to your question.
1: <laughs> We're all
2: Jim Thompson
1: fans here. You mentioned earlier you adapted his novel The Getaway for Sam Peck and Paul. I read that Jim Thompson also worked on the script. Yes,
2: he, he wrote. He he adapted the novel and did two drafts. I didn't know that when I came on. They'd they never showed them to me, and they just said, start, here's the book, write a script. I, I should mention it was Peter Bogdanovich and myself. Uh, Peter had been hired to direct the movie, and Peter hired me to write the script with him. And then Peter got into a disagreement on the movie. It was largely based on his availability or lack of because he was doing What's Up, Doc. So they decided not to wait and uh, they kept me going. Uh, and I finished my first draft. They liked it. They brought in uh, Sam. Sam came into it. Sam was just finishing up. Well, he had just finished Junior Bonner. But he was also in post-production on Straw Dogs, which I see they have just remade. So he was very busy, and he he, he then came in and immediately started prepping Getaway because they wanted to go fairly soon on the Getaway. So he, he was an incredibly busy guy at that moment in his life. But, but Thompson, who I met later, had adapted his book. I never really have read both drafts. I've seen a couple of scenes that he wrote. I was later told that his drafts were very, very, almost exactly straight lifts from the book. Um, why not if you had written the book? I mean, and somebody had hired you to write the script, I guess that would certainly be the normal thing to do. But they they had really decided that they didn't want to go, they didn't want an exact duplicate of the book. They wanted to go and different directions. So when people sometimes ask me about the liberties taken that I took with the book and all that, I'm, I'm a great admirer of the book. And um, people will ask me why we didn't use the L Ray sequence at the end or various other things. And, um, I, you know, I, I try to tell them that, well, had we done that, the, the movie wouldn't have been made. So I'm not sure, uh, because Steve and the studio at that time, nor did Sam, actually, when he came into it, nor did Peter, as far as that goes, when he he was working on it. Nobody wanted to go down that path, so I tried to fashion, I guess, a little more traditional approach in terms of cinema.
1: One of my favorite films of yours is The Driver, and that was an original screenplay you wrote. could you discuss yeah. the origins of the script
2: the uh... again was uh, uh... larry gordon the hard times had come out and had actually been uh, reasonably successful and we had gotten uh... especially for a bronson movie you know we had gotten pretty nice reviews quite, quite a surprise to all of us <laughs> i have to say and uh... Suddenly, his Larry's production company was launched, and I was launched as a director, and etc. And Larry said to me very quickly, he said he had always wanted to do a movie about a getaway driver as a specialist, and would that interest me? And I said, well, yeah, it, it did sound like a good subject to me. He ra- he rushed over to the studio and made a deal. I I. Uh, being the usual lazy writer, was hoping that he actually had a plot in mind or something else. But there was that was it. Was let's make a movie about a getaway driver. So I, uh, uh, the studio, uh, agreed. So I went home and I wrote an original screenplay, and um, I, guess, I guess I was just wrestling around with this notion of how. I can't think of another word it sounds uh, rather pretentious but how pure I could make something how how undeviating and how I was I was unhappy with hard times in certain ways I I liked the movie very much but uh, as these things go but I was unhappy that it genuflected to a lot of traditional Hollywood oh uh, clichés I guess you'd call them and I wanted to make something that was uh, a genre film, but that really didn't compromise itself in traditional Hollywood ways. And the more I wrote on it, then the more I kind of got into that idea. And so I, I wrote it very. I wrote it as a very tight script. And then, of course, couldn't couldn't get it. We couldn't get it cast for about a year and a half, and. Uh, all the actors turned down and I said, I think I'm wandering around here did I answer your question or? Yeah that's
1: fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Warriors is a visually striking movie. How did you and Andrew L- Laszlo come up with the movie's look?
2: Well I I wanted it to be extremely lurid and use the full color palette and I wanted it to be comic book like. I mean I I kept thinking, and uh, I would say to Andy, uh, you know, the splash panels in comics is really kind of what you guys know what the splash panel is. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, you know, I wanted a series of kind of vignettes, and think of oh, we should always think of it as a splash panel, and that the movie, the aesthetic of the movie really is comic book book in format. I want a comic book come to life. Even though it's kind of this little, I've always seen it as kind of a science fiction story, but um, it confuses people when <laughs> when I say that because science fiction is, you know, rocket ships and ray guns and all that kind of thing. But uh, you know, this is a vaguely futuristic, somewhat crazed story that has the technology of the time that it was made. Uh, they keep trying to remake it, but they're they're kind of, you know, I think they're defeated by m- modern technology where everybody has a cell phone and all that kind of business.
1: Well, this is one of many great lines in this movie uh, you wrote. There's a line Keith Carradine states in Southern Comfort. He says, R.C. colas and moon pies, we're not too smart, but we have a real good time. And I'm just curious, how did you know about redneck culture so well? <laughs>
2: Well, I kind of grew I guess, in a way, I am a redneck. I grew up in most of my family's Southern. I grew up in Long Beach, California. But, um, I mean, I, I, I would like to point out that, that Carradine at that moment is objecting to the stereotypes of uh, and is being ironic, but it's a kind of left-handed defense of the people of the South. Where I grew up, we were kind of imbued with that type of, Culture. I mean, I, I very much grew up with country music and people that had immigrated, families that had immigrated to that part of California from from the South and the Southwest. So it never seemed strange. I always have this feeling I'm I'm um, going home anytime I go back to the South. Although it's it's a romantic bit of nonsense, I
1: mean
2: <laughs> but uh, but you know directors indulge themselves in this
1: kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I've also read that the visual look of Southern Comfort was taken from the photographs of a Korean War photographer, David Douglas Duncan. Uh, why
2: did you use his photographs? As a- well, I just thought they were so haunted. Actually, that was an idea that was presented to me by Andy Laszlo who showed me, uh, I had seen the photographs before, but we were kind of looking, we knew we were going to be shooting low light levels and very naturalistic uh, you know m- most of the movie is made without lights and our ability to go out there in the swamp and take lights with us was almost non-existent you know it was almost like Andy had six flashlights to shine in somebody's face so we uh, the, the the idea was okay take the disadvantages of whatever you're doing I think this is a good lesson in filmmaking probably I don't want to get too grand but probably a good lesson about life as well. Whatever the cards you're dealt, turn them to your advantage. And if you are if you cannot go with the full Hollywood uh, nine trucks filled with lights and all that, if that's impossible, what kind of photography can be interesting photography where you don't have those things? And we obviously turned to certain kinds of wartime photography, and he found that remarkable stuff that, had been done in Korea, if memory serves me correctly, and we decided that that was the look. And I, I'm a very, uh, although it's a, it's a tough movie, and it's a, uh, it's certainly a bleak movie. But I'm, I was, I was very pleased with the film. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but i in the sense we're not supposed to write our own reviews. But I thought that the the look of it was exactly what I had set out to do.
1: I was uh, just watching Streets of Fire yesterday for the first time in probably 20 years, and which when it came out, I guess, it didn't do really well at the box office. And looking at it now, I mean, it seems to be kind of the quintessential Walter Hill movie. It has, you know, rock and roll, the Westerns, the, you know, taking a lot of things from uh, the Warriors and moving them on. And, And I guess looking at it now, You know, in 2011, there's a lot of things out. Like, I don't know if you know about the steampunk movement that's
2: really big. Yeah, I
1: mean, it just seems like, I mean, do you think that the movie was just, you know,
2: too ahead of its time? Oh, I think probably uh, it was, it had a strange, I mean, it didn't do well at all here, as you just reminded me. (laughs) uh,
1: Sorry. uh,
2: No, no, it's true. It's absolutely true. And it didn't do um, didn't do well at all in England. It did very well in odd pla- uh, Well, I don't know odd, but uh, it did. It was a big hit in Italy. It was a big hit in Israel, of all places. It did well in Japan. Did very very well in Japan. As I said, the movie always does well anytime you don't speak English. And <laughs> there's some, there's something about when it was in a foreign language or it had to be translated, the movie seemed to work fine for an audience, but we just couldn't get anybody to come see the thing. I, you know, whether or not it was too far ahead of its time, I don't know. The movie was made before MTV had really taken hold. I didn't even know anything about MTV when it it started the thing, and then by the time the movie came out, we were being criticized as... Oh, my God, motion pictures are already surrendered to MTV sensibilities. So it's the old, you know, you can never win on this stuff. I personally think that the movie just, uh, I was not totally happy with it. There was a couple of decisions, but the, the movie was supposed to use 1950s and 60s rock and roll rhythm and blues. And the studio at the last minute said, no, 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 we, we can't make this movie unless we have all new music and contemporary artists and that kind of thing. And I think the, the music in the movie is not terrible or anything like that. It's just not quite what I had in mind. And I think in some ways it, it, wouldn't, it wasn't as much fun as the other mu- music that I had in mind would have. Music's very important. In the delivery of of, of what the, what a movie does to your sensibility, I mean, there's a lot more than just the actors saying the lines, and uh, obviously, and music is a critical component, and it certainly was a critical critical component in in that one. So I just think that maybe we, uh, and and I think it was just my fault too, the movie's just not uh, quite enough fun. And I've thought about it, uh, I haven't thought about it much in a long time, but uh, uh, it just didn't, you know, there was something about the dilemma of the Warriors. I mean, there, there are no jokes in the Warriors to speak of, but the movie is fun, even though the characters are in agony, the movie is fun for an audience to watch. I, I was, somehow we didn't generate that in Streets of Fire. The the good time of going to a movie, that experience was not as great. I think that's why the movie didn't do well terribly in this country. Although, I have to say this, nobody came the first night. So they didn't know what it was. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the second night, people have an idea. They talk to somebody. Uh, But they didn't even come the first night, so... uh, I don't know you know it's a mystery it really is you you work in this business you say well how the hell do they know in Cincinnati not to come (laughs) you know (laughs) it's the same you know you the the trailers and everything promise a great time and it looks interesting I mean every movie looks interesting in two minutes uh, or almost every movie How the hell did they smell this out and decide it wasn't for them? And but they did, and it was universal. I mean, you know, it was. They didn't come in Boston. They didn't come in Cincinnati. And they didn't come in New Orleans. And they didn't come in Long Beach. So. I don't know. So you go on to the next.
1: Like John Ford, you have your own stock company of actors. When you sit down to write a script, do you think to yourself, well, this would be a good part for Bruce Dern or David Patrick Kelly would be perfect for this or James Ramirez I like for this part?
2: Do you think about that when you're writing? Not really. I've often written lead parts with characters in mind. I used to write everything for Lee Marvin. I never got a chance to He was always my ideal. The the actors I wanted to work with, I wanted to work with Lee Marvin. I wanted to work with George C. Scott, and I wanted to work with Jack Nicholson. I've never gotten a chance to uh, work with any of those guys. And then, but but about halfway through, I'll decide. Oh, you know, that would be a great part for Bruce, say, or you know, I could use Bruce in this one, or. So it kind of a. I don't start out that way, but it kind of begins to fit in, and then you then you can hear their voice, and then that helps you write it. Um, you were the executive
1: producer, and you directed three episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Were you a big fan
2: of the EC comics growing up? Yes, it was. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was. I had optioned the comics and uh, had a deal with Universal, and we were wanting to make a. Um, you know. A, one of those films where you'd have several stories, and but that the Twilight Zone came out before we got that together, and the Twilight Zone was not a big success, and so the studio wasn't interested. And Joel Silver came in, and he saw all the comics sitting around my office, and he got interested in it. And he came back to me and basically said, "Can I run with this? I think maybe I could." set it up at HBO if we bring in some other partners etc cetera, et cetera. and I was off on a bunch of other things I said sure to Joel mm-hmm. so my thing was they, they wanted uh, the directors to agree to do three so I said look I'll do I'll certainly do my three but my my deal on the show is very simple you guys leave me alone when I do my three and I won't bother the show. I mean, I'm not going to try to supervise the scripts or the way it comes down or something. So Joel took took really took took it all over, and uh, he ran he and Dick Donner ran the show, and uh, I didn't have anything to do with it other than my as I say my three episodes.
1: And the final question of you've directed
2: the new. I, I actually just sorry to interrupt. Oh, go ahead. I, I can't remember. I also did a pilot. For the weird science thing with Keith Carradine. Was that Perversions of Science? Perversions of Science. It was actually the the EC comic book was Weird Science, but Joel had used that title for a John Hughes movie, and so they changed it to Perversions of Science. And, and then I think the one that I did on that pilot, which d- did not sell, I think they rolled that one over into... Uh, Crypt episode. I'm not sure about that. I'd have to ask Joel. I now see jo- Joel. Joel and I are working together again after twenty some years, and uh, he's the producer on uh, Bullet to the Head.
1: Well, that's going to be the next question. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about Bullet in
2: the Head and when it will be released? Yes. The plan is it's coming out April 13th. It's a Warner Brothers film. It has Mr. Stallone and Jason Momoa and Sung Kang as the three leads in the piece. It's a bit of a throwback film to, I think, kind of genre of the 80s, the, I don't know what you call them, but uh, kind of, you know, two, two guys thrown together by the circumstances of life that have a compressed and within a compressed time frame who don't like each other but or have a common enemy have to work things out rather quickly so i I enjoyed working with sly enormously and everybody had said to me you know christ don't do this thing you know he's a a director killer and this and that and the other thing and god i i found him uh terrific to work with I, i loved him He's a smart guy, and he's you know he's he's directed ten movies himself, and I mean, he knows the score. But you know at Bottom he he's 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 a writer, and he's produced, and he's as I say directed. But he's an actor, and he wants to be directed, and he wants to act, and he wants to be able to show of off his tools and um, and skills. And I think the movie, although I wouldn't say that it's a movie that reaches terribly high but uh, as I said to somebody the other day if you're looking for the king's speech I don't think, <laughs> I, don't think I don't think this is going to be the one but um, but if you're looking for something that's uh, the guys knock each other around a bit and have some fun on the way uh, I think it'd probably be all right
1: Okay. Um, Mr. Hill, I just wanted to say thank you. I know you don't do interviews much, and I was really ticked. I don't. I've been uh, curiously
2: loquacious uh, today because you guys have been so polite in uh, my stalling around uh, because of my going off making a film and then going to Europe. and uh, I kept getting these reports that you had said, don't worry, we'll be very respectful of your time, and da-da-da-da, so I was very pleased by that, and uh, there's, I know you'll find this amazing, but there are people that somehow seem to think they have the right to ask you, (laughs) they have the right to your time and ask you anything they want, and um, so I'm a little tricky about that stuff, but,
1: uh, no, this has been fun. All righty. Once again, it was a thrill talking to you. Well,
2: thank you, William. All right. Take care, sir, and good good luck. luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. We need it. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye.
0: I would like to thank Walter Hill for doing the interview. Remember, come to the Nashville Public Library, 615 Church Street, in the main auditorium at 2 p.m. to see Hard Times. Mark your calendar, Saturday, March 10th, to see Hard Times on our big screen. And remember, it's free.